When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we start, we want to remind you that there's a special offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers. It's been great to see so many of you signing up with this code. Yeah, there's loads of premium content to check out, including videos, features, interviews, and an amazing archive of work going back donkey's years. Pod 20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in the world of science, or at least all the things that have got us really excited and energised in the week. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Valerie Jamison. I'm creative director of New Scientist Events. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporter and pod regular Graham Lawton. Hi, Graham. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, doing really well, thanks. Uh, On this week's show, we've got some really interesting geopolitical science intrigue. There's gene editing in Russia and Vladimir Putin's interest in that and Chinese expansion into space. And we have news on the Great Green Wall being built across Africa. And we have this. All will be revealed, but I'll just say that those noises come from one of the most fascinating mammals in the world. Oh, I'm so intrigued. But first, let's start with what we are billing as a revolution in nutrition. So, Graham, there's only a small amount of hype to live up to there. What's the story this week? What is precision nutrition? Well, it's often assumed that there's this kind of one size fits all healthy diet that will work for everyone. You know, that's both for weight loss and for overall health. And that's kind of been a core assumption of nutrition science for more than 100 years. But recent research has cast some really serious doubt on that. And it turns out that people respond to food in such idiosyncratic ways that everybody actually needs a kind of personalized nutrition plan to optimize their health and their weight. And actually, the first baby steps are being taken towards delivering that for all of us. So, yeah, we are at the start of a healthy eating revolution that's being called personalised or precision nutrition. Now, when you say that people respond to food in idiosyncratic ways, what what do you mean here? To what extent? I'll give you an example that was recounted to me by one of the leading scientists in this area, and that's Tim Spector of King's College London. He of COVID tracker app fame. 
but this is what he was working on before COVID came along. So he told me that for about a decade, he ate the same thing for lunch every day, which was a tuna and sweet corn sandwich on brown bread, followed by a banana. Now, he thought this was a healthy choice until he looked at his own metabolic response and discovered it was just about the worst thing that he could possibly eat. So after lunch, he was having these huge surges of sugar and fat in his bloodstream. And they're both known to be risk factors for diabetes and heart disease and obesity. And I mean, you might think, of course, duh, who thinks tuna sandwiches are healthy? Well, what I thought was, who has the same thing for lunch for a whole decade? (laughs) Uh, Me, I think. What's weird about that? Anyway, the point is, the point is, that if somebody else ate that lunch, they almost certainly would respond quite differently. For some people, it really would be a really healthy lunch. And for others, it would be even worse than it was for Tim. Uh, for most, it'd be neither particularly good or bad either way. It kind of depends. Well, on what? Well, there are a lot of individual differences in play here. And I mean, obvious first one to go to is genetics, but it turns out that plays a pretty small part. So when Spectre's team gave identical meals to identical twins, uh, it turned out they also responded in wildly different ways. Um, And it turns out they're much more important than other things like the makeup of your gut microbiome, your age, your gender, medical history, body mass index and how much sleep and exercise you're getting. So you can see there's this huge scope for individual response to the same foods. Okay, so that's that sounds like it makes sense. But can it have a major impact on health over the long term? Yeah, it really can. I mean, one of the famous studies in this area is called the Diet Fit Study, and that essentially put hundreds of people onto low-fat or low-carb diets for over a year and watched how they responded. And even though the diets were identical, people responded in really different ways. Some people lost weight, but some people gained weight, up to 30 kilograms. And there was no correlation between the diet and how they responded to it. So are you saying that weight gain or loss is not just about calories in versus calories out? Well, actually, to a first approximation, it still is calories in, calories out, which is that famous Kiko uh, expression. But the individual response into how much energy we extract from certain foods makes that just the starting point. In your piece, you say that for some people, things that are universally regarded as unhealthy foods can be good and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you another example. Maybe the best one is processed white bread versus artisan sourdough. Now, which of those do you think is going to be better for you? Well, sourdough, obviously. Yeah, and for some people it is. But when another research team from Israel looked at people's metabolic response to eating cheap processed white bread versus artisan sourdough, and they told me they bought the best bread that money could buy in Tel Aviv, they saw something really unexpected. Some people did, as you might expect, and had blood glucose spikes after the cheap white bread, but not after the sourdough. But some people had the opposite. And some people spiked after both and some people spiked after neither of them. And the same turned out to be true for other foods, including ice cream, beer, uh, fresh vegetables and for fat spikes as well as glucose ones. So does that mean we can just all go out and eat what we want? Sadly, no. (laughs) You actually need to know what your personal good foods and bad foods are. And actually right now that's kind of easier said than done. But in the near future and people working on this, you might be able to give uh, a blood and a stool or a urine sample and have various other parameters measured, such as your age and your body mass index. And then you'll they'll be able to tell you what foods to avoid and which foods to eat. Um, another way that you can do something right now is to buy one of those cheap glucose monitors that diabetics use to keep track of their blood sugar and do some self-experimentation. So what you would do is monitor your own response to certain foods. 
recall that a rapid and big sugar spike is bad for both metabolic health and weight gain. Now, some people can actually feel this happening um, without a monitor. So if certain foods make you feel a little bit lightheaded then suddenly lethargic, that means you're having a big glucose spike and you should probably steer clear of those foods. That's me after a big slice of cake. Yeah, well, some people get it after cake. I know somebody who gets it after mayonnaise. Uh, you know, again, it's very idiosyncratic. So foods that you might not think will give you a glucose spike might be giving you a glucose spike and they're probably worth avoiding. Uh, unfortunately, blood fat is not possible to monitor personally yet. But in a few years' time, this could all be quite a routine part of preventive medicine and the US National Institutes of Health has committed a large amount of money to a 10-year program to make precision nutrition a reality. And a lot of the people that I spoke to said this is the start of a revolution in food. Thanks, Graham. Do check out Graham's feature in this week's magazine. It's the cover story. And now it's time for our space travel update. This is where we take a look at the space flight and space exploration industry. And this week we go to China. Yeah, on September the 4th, there was a launch from a space centre in the Gobi Desert in China. Uh, it was from one of China's Long March rockets. Uh, they're the class of rockets that China regularly uses to get things into space. But on the latest launch, people noticed um, a weird large payload at the top of the rocket. Hmm, what could that be? <laughs> like you don't know. Um, it turns out to have been an experimental space plane. And basically, it's a reusable space shuttle type of vehicle that was placed into orbit by this Long March rocket. Yes, the state-run news agency later confirmed the launch, saying that our, quote, reusable experimental spacecraft had been put into orbit to test reusable technologies during its flight, providing technological support for the peaceful use of space. Unquote. Now, tracking data has showed the vehicle has been placed in an orbit up to 350 kilometres in altitude, which is a similar height to China's previous crude flights. But much about the launch is still unknown, including the size of the vehicle, how long it will remain in space and what it's actually going to do in orbit. Yeah, the launch took people by surprise and China is quite secretive about its space technology. But we do know it's been working on a space plane for about a decade um, and it actually announced in 2017 that it would fly a space plane in 2020 and, and it seems to have gone and done that. Uh, what people think is that eventually a reusable space plane will take Chinese astronauts to and from orbit, uh, probably to the Chinese space station. Yeah, this is really interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, I always have to be reminded that China has a space station. But the International Space Station, it's only got a few years left on it, hasn't it, before it's going to be deorbited? Yeah, um, its, it's future is in doubt uh, because the NASA's funding runs out in 2024. Uh, so it could, it could go into private ownership, but that would be very expensive even for a huge company. Now, there was some talk about commercialising access to the International Space Station, wasn't there? Um, there were suggestions even from NASA last year that it would charge $35,000 a night to stay on the space station. And that doesn't even include getting there. Yeah, I, I went down a, a rabbit hole looking into this. 35000 a night. It sounds a lot, but it's actually much cheaper than some hotel rooms on Earth. <laughs> yeah, the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas has a suite there, an absurdly named the Empathy Suite, uh, which is a hundred thousand dollars a night. Um, but yeah, you've got to don't go down that rabbit hole. Well, I started to feel sick at looking at those. What do you get for your thirty-five grand? I bet it's not exactly the most salubrious hotel in the world, is you it? You get good views. 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, so back to space and China. So the point was that a reusable crewed space plane can really boost China's ambitions in space. China already has had two space stations, but they had limited lifespans. It now plans to have a self-sustaining space station by 2022. Yeah, and a space analyst we spoke to said that a reusable crewed space plane is the ideal technology for atmospheric re-entry, and it's, it's much less brutal to the human body to get back in a space plane. Um, but there is another possibility, and that's that the vehicle is more like the X-37B, and that's America's secret spacecraft. Um, so all we really know is that it's a small, uncrewed, reusable spacecraft. This is the American one. Uh, it's built by Boeing, uh, and that has flown to space multiple times, and the missions have lasted more than a year. Uh, no one really knows what they're doing what it's doing in orbit. Now, should we be sceptical about the statement uh, from China saying that the space plane is to provide tech support for the peaceful use of space? Uh, I think it's probably sensible to be (laughs) sceptical. You know, uh, it's hard to see why they've been so secretive otherwise. But there's also another mystery because the Chinese space plane released an object into orbit that the US space surveillance picked up. Uh, Again, we don't know what it is. But look, the take home message of all this is that China is doing more and more stuff in space with low cost launch vehicles. They're also developing a deep space vehicle and the space station. They want to go to Mars. Uh, They want to build facilities on the far side of the moon. So they're all over it. But it's all go, isn't it? Um, The European Space Agency has their own space plane project. It's called Space Rider. Yeah, it's a bit of a crap name, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like David Hasselhoff would be the pilot of that one, doesn't it? (laughs) They should call it the Space Hopper, surely that would be even better. (laughs) And uh, don't forget that China has two space plane projects as well, Shenlong, which means Divine Dragon, and Tengyun, or Cloud Climber. These are much better names than the European Mm. one, isn't it? India also has a space plane in development, but I, I don't know what the name of that is. Maybe Space Tiger? I don't know. But if anyone listening has uh, knows what the India's space plane is called or what it should be called, please let us know. Time out. We have a new publication to tell you about, all about the crisis that has overtaken our lives, coronavirus. Because the science of coronavirus is constantly changing and because of the misinformation out there, we've put together a special digital-only issue of our Essential Guide series, all about coronavirus and COVID-19. In it, you'll find a selection of our best, most informative articles on the pandemic brought bang up to date. From where the virus came from, to how it spreads, how best to stop it, and an insight into the race for a vaccine. This essential guide brings you all you need to know about coronavirus right now. This digital edition is available to buy in the New Scientist app. Download it now from the Apple App Store. What is that noise? That is the glorious roar of the greatest mammal in Africa. Oh, hang on, hang on. I know that squeak. I'd know that anywhere. That is a naked mole rat. It is. It's a legend. Well, in my house anyway, it's a legend. It's the naked mole rat. Rowan, I think you're going to have to explain your quite frankly disturbing obsession with these rodents. Oh, you know, I think it's natural to be... You love them too, Graham, right? Oh, I think they're amazing, yeah. So, okay, for those who don't know, they are naked mole rats are rodents. They live underground in parts of East Africa. Uh, They are somewhat odd looking. 
So I thought, oh, that's, that's an understatement if ever I heard one. They are hideous. They, <laughs> they are hairless. They're not hideous. They're hairless and wrinkled. Uh, and they have a giant pair of teeth growing through their lips. Uh, I've got to admit that is quite cool. So naked mole rats, they dig tunnels with their teeth, which is why the teeth grow through the lips. This means that they can keep their mouths closed while they're biting through the soil. There are loads of fascinating things about them. For example, they are exceptionally long-lived. They get to 30 years old or more. Uh, And if humans lived the same time relative to body size, we'd live to 600. Uh, They're also immune to cancer and pain, or they don't get cancer like other mammals. And then my favourite thing about them, though, is their way of life, their social system, which is more like a social insect. Uh, They live in a colony ruled by a single queen. There might be 300 members of the colony, but only the queen reproduces And they have division of labour too, like you get in a bee or ant nest where you have workers and soldiers. And only one other mammal in the world has this kind of social reproduction system. And that's another kind of mole rat called the Damaraland mole rat. Uh, You forgot to mention that they're the only mammal apart from humans that buries their dead. Oh, fantastic addition. I I mentioned that in a previous podcast. (laughs) It's more about hygiene than sort of symbolism because they live underground. But anyway, they're pretty awesome. I think everyone would now agree they are the most awesome mini beast in Africa. But you know, what's new? Uh, Well, so we started this piece with the noise of the mole rats squeaking to each other. Uh, They are very vocal. But what's weird is they have very poor hearing. Uh, They're almost blind, which is understandable more because, you know, they live underground. But it is weird that they're practically deaf and they make these loud cries. Yeah, this is really counterintuitive to me. I would have thought they would have had excellent hearing. OK, so so what's going on and why should we care? So uh, some scientists have been investigating this. And the first thing they found is that the mole rats are only able to hear in a very narrow band of frequency between 0.5 and 4 kilohertz. Uh, for comparison, humans can detect sounds between 0.02 and 20 kilohertz, so a far broader range, and some bats can go up to 200 kilohertz. And when the scientists looked at what was going on in the cochlea, uh, that's the part of the inner ear where sound is amplified for interpretation in the rest of the ear, uh, they found that there wasn't any amplification going on. So the mole rats have uh, these abnormal outer hair cells that can't amplify the sound. So does this have anything to do with human deafness? Can naked mole rats tell us anything about us? Yeah, the researchers were able to link the proteins involved in the abnormal hair cells in the mole rats to some kinds of deafness uh, and hearing loss in humans. So maybe they can be used to model human deafness and help develop treatments? Yeah, that's one idea. But the other interesting thing the researchers found is that the mutations that have caused these mole rat hair cells to become abnormal are not random. They've been positively selected for. So hang on. So you mean that the mole rats evolved bad hearing? Why would that be? Well, no one knows. Um, One idea is that they lost some of their hearing ability because the sense isn't required underground. Uh, But then again, you know, they have got they squeak to each other. Uh, Another suggestion is that there's lots of echoes underground, so they evolved to have bad hearing to avoid this overexposure to all the acoustic bounces going on. And now it's time for climate hope or doom, when we discuss some of the latest news to do with climate change and decide how full or how empty we think the glass is looking. Uh, Well done for not cursing this time, Val. (laughs) I did drop an F-bomb last time, didn't I? (laughs) Uh, This week, it's the news about the Great Green Wall. Have you guys heard about this? 
Ooh, not for ages. No. I think I think I have, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I'd forgotten all about it, to be honest. it's uh, It was launched 13 years ago, this plan, and the idea is to plant a belt of trees across the whole width of Africa, so 8,000 kilometres. Uh, yeah, I remember it, we covered it at, t- at the time, I think. Yeah. So, well, it was a great plan. It is a great plan. It's about making a, a wall of trees to stop the desert advancing. The wall is supposed to eventually stretch across the Sahel, which is the semi-arid region south of the Sahara. So what's been happening in the past 13 years? What have they achieved? Right, so there's a big new status update all about it, and our reporter Adam Vaughan has been through this thing. Uh, It shows that there are 17.8 million hectares of land that have been restored, mostly in Ethiopia. Yeah, I heard that Ethiopia has been planting a lot of trees recently, and there was, I think, there was a claim for some record number of trees planted in one day. Yeah, uh, that claim wasn't verified or hasn't yet been verified, but it does seem to be part of a government reforestation scheme, not so much part of this Great Green Wall scheme. But yeah, there is lots of interesting stuff going on in Ethiopia to that end. So you said 17.8 million hectares in 13 years, and that sounds a lot, but you know. How does it compare to the target? The target is 100 million hectares by 2030. So that's that's 10 years away and they're going to need a lot more... Tr- they're going to have to up the pace, basically, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But, and also the idea has changed a bit. Originally, the plan was to literally plant a contiguous wall of trees and now it's looking like they're going to go for a, a wider band of vegetation. They want it to be 15 kilometres wide. But it's a good thing to, to adapt to... You know, It has to be more realistic ecologically to plant different things in different places and socially uh, to adapt to different conditions along the path of the wall. Who's funding all of this? And uh, don't tell me, I bet they need more money as well. Uh, I'm sure they could always do with more money. Uh, I think it's funded by the UN Convention to Combat Desertification uh, and and by various government contributions. And there have been some cock-ups on the way, basically. In Senegal, they planted just two or three plant species over huge plots of land and sometimes they planted trees completely unsuited to the local ecology and it turned out better a better idea to just fence the land off and let the vegetation grow back Uh, sometimes people planted eucalyptus which are exotic species Uh, they grow fast but they just won't make the land more productive this is exactly one of the problems with the idea of planting billions of trees to help mitigate climate change. That's to draw CO2 down from the atmosphere by literally growing loads and loads of vegetation. problem is that people might plant millions of birch trees which grow really fast and then you can tick that off your carbon capture budget, but they're totally unsuitable to the local environment and they die off or chop down for IKEA furniture. <laughs> just, release, just release the CO2 back into the atmosphere. Yeah, it is like the criticisms we're seeing with those tree planting initiatives. Uh, And they are valid. Uh, We do need to plant the right trees in the right place and tend to them for years. Incidentally, did you know that China has its own great green wall of forests in the northwest? And that's being planted to try to stop the spread of the Gobi Desert. Ah, how's that going? Well, turns out that amazingly 27% of all of China is, is desertified, has been turned into desert. And that affects 400 million people. Oof. So this, yeah, this uh, this great green wall project has been going on for years. It, and this one isn't due to finish until 2050. But so far, apparently, they've planted more than 66 billion trees. But again, they're not all being tended to after being planted. So great green wall, obvious question: Can you see it from space? <laughs> <laughs> we probably can. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you know, the, the European Space Agency is planning a satellite mission called Biomass, which is due to launch now in 2022. And the idea here is to measure the carbon stored in the world's forests. Um, so, yeah, they'll be able to measure that from space. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Anyway, for the, going back to the wall of trees in Africa. Um, so I mean, what's been happening there? Have, have the trees been tended to and looked after? Um, the report says that the monitoring expertise has been missing, basically. Uh, there are some signs of promise, though. The Food and Agriculture Organization is tracking 50,000 hectares of trees by satellite, like, like you just mentioned. OK, so what about the whole point of it? You know, is it working? Is that wall of trees actually stopping the growth of the desert? Yeah, good good question. And it turns out we're not even sure about that. Ugh, right. Yeah. But... 335,000 jobs have been created and some have been involved in restoring the land and others in selling products from trees such as gum arabic. You know, um, on balance, I am going to go for hope this week. Yep, you have to take it where you can. And now we turn to the process of making CRISPR babies. (laughs) Yeah, that's CRISPR as in the gene editing technique rather than CRISPR as in crispy bacon, in case there's any confusion. (laughs) No, we don't want to be making crispy babies, do we? Uh, uh, This is about, well, do we want to make babies with modified genes? That's that's what this is about. Mm, So what is going on? Okay, so the story this week is that the International Commission on the Clinical Use of Human Germline Genome Editing, which is a bunch of international scientists charged with looking at the ethics of modifying humans, has released its report. Hooray! And the main conclusion is that genome editing isn't yet safe and effective enough to alter human embryos before implantation in the uterus. Right, well, that's not too surprising, really, is it? To be honest, it makes sense, right? Yeah, I I think, you know, with, with a technology like this, caution is the watchword, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that, you know, if it's not safe, then just don't go there. Um, obviously, lots of ethical questions do come up when it is safe, but that's maybe for another day. Yeah, in the report, the scientists say that the existing methods uh, can cause unintended genetic mutations and may not even correct the condition causing mutation in every cell. So that leads to an issue known as mosaicism. So you get a, mo- a mosaic of some cells that have been repaired and some normal cells. But they do think the tech will be ready very soon, maybe only in a few years. So where does this leave us? So it depends on whether or not you follow the advice of the International Commission on the Clinical Use of Human Germline Genome Editing. Uh, you could just go rogue. So, of course, there was a Chinese scientist, He Zhangqi, who famously or infamously went rogue and created three children with edited genomes. Yeah, it was the birth of those three children that spurred the creation of this commission in the first place. Um, But the problem is, in many countries, there's no legal regulation around it, around gene editing in humans. So in Russia, for example, it's it would be possible to do it. And actually, that is what one Russian scientist is planning. Yes, this is Denis Rebrikov, who told our reporter Michael LePage this week that he is going ahead with CRISPR editing of a human embryo in order to correct the hearing loss mutation so that a hearing baby can be born to a deaf couple. Yeah, there are lots of concerns around it. It's not just that everyone says the technique is not safe enough to use on humans, but that even if it was safe enough, most scientists think that CRISPR should be only used in very limited situations. Um, And that would be when prospective parents have no option for having a genetically related child that doesn't inherit a disease and when normal screening used in IVF can't solve the problem. 
Yeah, well, I mean, deafness isn't a disease that causes premature death. You know, that's the definition that they use, isn't it? Yeah, so we think Rebrikov is just a rogue scientist, right? Well, you know, if the vast majority of scientists agree that something's unsafe or premature and one scientist ignores that view, I think it's safe to say that he or she is a rogue. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but there's some really there's some deeper intrigue here. There was a big meeting of some of Russia's top geneticists last year. This was a secret meeting in southern Moscow and present at that meeting was an endocrinologist called Maria Vorontsova. Uh, apparently her views on bioethics are becoming increasingly influential in Russia. And so the scientists wanted her at the meeting. And it might have something to do with her being Vladimir Putin's daughter. Oh, hang on. Is that the same daughter who got the country's uh, COVID vaccine? I don't know. Um, actually, the the Kremlin has never publicly confirmed that Vorontsova is Putin's daughter. So who knows? Uh, but this is from a story in Bloomberg News from three people who were at the, this secret meeting. And the gist of it is that gene editing because it's currently unregulated in Russia, uh, the person who's going to have final say about how it does get regulated is Putin. So the scientists wanted to get their views directly to his daughter and then on to him. So what are their views? So at the meeting, they spoke about Rebrikov's plan to use CRISPR and they argued for and against it. Apparently, the feeling afterwards was one of optimism for the supporters of Rebrikov that Vorontsova may end up supporting them. So she said apparently that scientific progress can't be stopped and that human DNA editing should be prohibited in the private sector and confined to state-run facilities so as to maximise oversight. So we, we already know that Putin is really into CRISPR, don't we? Yeah, uh, he said he thinks it will have a bigger impact than artificial intelligence, which, I, you know, it's a funny thing to say to rank future impacts like that. I mean, CRISPR and AI are probably both going to have a massive impact, right? Well, I, I think um, I think actually he's got a bit of a point. You know, I mean, just putting humans to um, to one side for a moment. Um, you know, just think about you know why don't you think about livestock and crops? You know, selective breeding has improved the yields that we get from animals. Have produced meatier animals, um, more productive crops. But selective breeding takes ages, and gene editing is a real sort of fast track way to do this. So, I mean, it really could like revolutionise everything here, and it. Could improve animal welfare as well so i think i think actually putin's got a point on this okay nice to see your you and him are in agreement here <laughs> yeah. um, so he uh, putin's allocated two billion dollars for genetic research in russia and he's put his daughter vorontsova on the 30 person panel that oversees the work um, and yeah putin says gene editing will determine the future of the whole world that's all for this week Thank you for joining us, Graham, and thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. Uh, yeah, please do get in touch. We love hearing from you. We're really pleased that so many people are listening to us from all over the world, from Alaska and Greenland to Chile and Argentina and Australia and New Zealand and everywhere in between. Uh, we've got people listening in the Rift Valley in Kenya and we have a listener, we have 14 listeners in North Korea and, and wow. listeners in the Vatican. Hello and hello, welcome. Hello. welcome to you all. <laughs> the only place we don't have listeners is Antarctica. You know, it's the same with our online events as well. So if you know anyone overwintering there, then do let them know and get in touch. So we'll give you a shout out. Uh, we have people listening in Houston. So do you think we can claim the International Space Station? I think so, yeah. Uh, we'd love to give them a shout out as well. 
Anyway, we'd love you to spread the word about our show. So please do urge your friends and family to check us out and subscribe to the podcast. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. I also want to say thanks to Chris Fawkes of Queen Mary University of London for providing the naked mole rat squeaks. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.